There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. This is the face of Ramos Clemente. A year ago, a beardless, nameless worker of the dirt who plotted behind a mule, furrowing someone else's land. Then he looked up at a hot Central American sun and he pledged the impossible. He made a vow that he would lead an avenging army against the tyranny that put the ache in his back and the anguish in his eyes. And now, one year later, the dream of the impossible has become a fact. In just a moment, we will look deep into this mirror and see the aftermath of a rebellion in the Twilight Zone. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo. And I'm your co-host, 80s E. 80s, welcome back to the Fifth Dimension once again. Yes, sir. Glad to be back in the TZ. Uh, season three, just not living up to expectations so far. Another yeah. downer of an episode, if you will. Yeah, so you're disappointed so far, other than the uh, Civil War episode. It's already slipping my yep. mind. The, well, the, the shelter the shelter was okay, uh, but the passerbys, yes, was very good. Um, so we'll see. Um, uh, hopefully, season three picks up soon. There's a couple of good ones in here, I know, towards the end. So we'll have to see how it goes. Yeah, there's plenty of episodes, so we've got time. There's quite a few. What is there like 37 in this season? I don't know, but uh, right. And just for those of you that are keeping track at home, this is episode 71 of the Twilight Zone. So yeah. Eric, we have done, uh, well, you didn't do the first couple of season yeah, one, but right. 71 episodes in so far. All right, well, let's launch into 71, and it's entitled The Mirror, and this is the Twilight Zone season number three, and it's episode number six, and it was uh, directed by Don Medford, and it was written by Rod Serling. And this original air date was October 20th, 1961, and you know what time it is, folks. That's right, a little segment we like to call, On This Day in History. All right, so for On This Day in TV and Film History, for October the 20th, oh, let me stop. Jimbo, did you have anything for the specific day? Did you have time to... Well, no, but two days prior to this, on October 18, 1961, West Side Story came out. Okay. Have you ever seen West Side Story? I have not. Still still number one on the uh, song charts that I saw was Hit the Road Jack by old Ray Charles and his orchestra. So Yeah, okay. So for October the 20th, let's go all the way back to 1930. And uh, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes premieres on NBC Radio on October 20th, 1930. Have you ever uh, caught any? I know you like old time radio shows. Have you ever love old time radio show? Uh, I have. Oh, cool. uh, yeah. Uh, did you ever listen to any of the old time radio shows, Eric? I haven't. Uh, not. There used to there used to be a local radio station here oh, that really? would play them at night, right? Like uh, Fibber McGee and Molly was a big one. Uh, the Shadow, um, the Archies. There's just several several awesome ones. Uh, the Lone Ranger. There were several westerns. Uh, some sci-fi ones. I, I recommend if anybody can listen or find them, do so. It's it makes you uh, be appreciative of what you have with TV and movies when all they had was radio and the drama <laughs> series going yeah. on there. I wonder if uh, not XM but Sirius Satellite Radio would have maybe a channel like that. I might have to check into that. That might well be there kind is of fun. there. There is an app on your phone, uh, like your Android or iOS. There's an old-time radio player that has several of these, uh, uh, I say sitcoms, but uh, radio shows on there that you can look up as well. Okay, good to know. We'll take notation of that. Um, 1955, let's skip ahead a few years, and Ira Levin's stage comedy No Time for Sergeants, based on uh, Mac Hyman's novel starring Andy Griffith 
And yes, featuring Don Knotts, opens at Alvin's Theater in NYC and runs for 796 performances. Some of you probably already know the some of the backdrop of uh, Andy Griffith and Don Knotts. That's sort of how they came to know each other before the, the famous Andy Griffith show. That's where they met on that uh, uh, in that stage comedy there. Also in 1955, the, this is rather uh, important notation, uh, the publication of The Return of the King, the third and final volume of The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, by George Allen and Unwin London. Am I spelling, saying that right? Unwin London? So uh, the third installment there of The Lord of the Rings in 1955. Excellent book. And on a lighter note, 1967, a purported Bigfoot is filmed at Bluff Creek by Roger Patterson. <laughs> and uh, Robert Gimlin in Nor- Northern California. So Bigfoot came on the scene in uh, 1967. Well, I guess the first filmed Bigfoot. All right, Eric. The Pat- Robert, uh, the Patterson film. Fake, hoax, or real? I don't, I, you're going to have to fill me in. I don't know what the Bigfoot, the Bigfoot film you're talking about is the Patterson Gimli or Grimlaw or whatever. Oh, uh, film. I thought you were uh, Roger Patterson. I thought you said yeah, Robert yeah. Patterson, like the the vampire. Well, I might have. Said, I, I was going to say <laughs> that I said maybe I'll just drop it to Patterson or whatever. But the, uh, the, the, the famous film, Eric, is it a hoax? Is I'm it real? Sure, I'm going to say it's real. Why not? I mean, because you don't want to start no controversy on the <laughs> podcast, do you? Yeah, that's a whole podcast into itself, <laughs> probably. Yeah. They, I'm sure there are podcasts out there that talk about the sightings of Bigfoot. Okay, let's skip ahead several years. In 1998, comedian Richard Pryor is awarded uh, the first ever Kennedy Center Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. So that was on October 20th, 1998. And last but not least, specific to this particular episode... Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was about one year after this episode aired, and uh, historians put it from about October 16th to October 28th of 1962, and you'll understand why that comes into play here shortly with the episode. So the Cuban Missile Crisis, October 16th through the 28th of 1962. Um, but uh, as far as the episode goes, I think I covered... No, let me let me just talk about total production costs and dates of filming and rehearsal, and then I'll kick it over to Jimbo for the uh, cast there. So total production costs for this episode was... It comes... Ranks in around normal, I guess, at $51,316.46. And again, 10x for inflation. I'm not going to give you all those numbers. And the dates of rehearsal for this episode was August the 14th, 1961. And uh, the dates of filming, it was three days of filming, August 15th, 16th, and 17th. And just as we kind of talked off air, Jimbo, there's not a whole lot of trivia, so therefore I don't really have a lot of uh, filming schedule, again, for those three dates. Uh, Really light uh, as far as trivia and overall info on this episode but Jimbo, why don't you give us a little info about this cast that uh, dons this episode? Sure, no problem. Um, very interesting cast, um, and I'll have some comments about those as we go through. Uh, but we have legendary actor Peter Falk. Uh, he played Ramos Clemente. Uh, he's probably most uh, famous, remembered for Columbo, uh, where he started in the television show. Uh, but also, he was in The Princess Bride. Um, if you remember, and oh, he was yeah, also he in was. a little comedy, Murder by Death. Um, very, very funny uh, movie there. Then you had Will Kuluva. Uh, he played General De Cruz. Uh, he was in a movie, To Trap a Spy, in 1964. Then you had Anthony Carbone. He played Cristo. Um, he was also known in this episode as The Bold One, uh, one of his uh, henchmen. Uh, he was <laughs> yeah. in a... a Bucket of Blood in 1959. And also, Eric, let's see if you know this one. See if you can finish this. Are you ready? Creature from the... Black Lagoon? Wrong. Haunted uh, Sea in 1961. You set me up. <laughs> I, set, I set you up for that one. Yeah, you set me up. <laughs> uh, then we had Arthur Bantanides. Or Bantanides. Uh, he played Tabal. He was known as the Quiet One. Um, Eric, <laughs> he was in, yes... Police Academy 3, Back in Training, Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol, and Police Academy 6, Citizen under, uh, Citizens Under Siege. Uh, yeah. Uh, so 
he played a uh, Mr. Kirkland, I believe was his name. I didn't write it down, but he was in a lot of the police academies. Then he had Rodolfo Hoyos Jr. He played Garcia, the strong one. Uh, he was in um, The Little Savage from 1959. Then we had Vladimir Sokolov. He played Father Tomas. Uh, he was in the great movie The Magnificent Seven in 1960. Then you had Richard Carlin. He played D. Alessandro. He was the dedicated one. Um, he was in uh, The Tangler Incident. Uh, then you had Robert McCord, <laughs> which <laughs> he's uncredited, but he's known as the bearded guard with priest. Uh, he was in the Wild Wild West TV show. They had Val Rufino. Uh, he was another uncredited guard. Uh, he was in the television show Gunsmoke. And yes, we had Rod Serling, who was the narrator creator of the Twilight Zone. So, Eric, before we get going, I do believe it's um, it's 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 either Cristo or Garcia. It's one of them. Whichever one is laying on the couch later in the episode and hops up. Yeah, dude, he has zero accent. Either that or he forgot to say his, his you know, speak in his uh, dialect that he was supposed to be speaking in. It was terrible. <laughs> but um, my question to you is, Peter Falk in this, um, do you think that they, um, I don't want to say black-faced him, but do you think they brown-faced him any, if you, know, you look at the pictures? It's interesting. Uh, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to table that for the end, because I wrote that sure. in at the end, but that, that was a question... We're, we're aligned. Our brain waves are on the same wavelength because uh, I uh, put that question in my uh, observations as well. I, I want to circle back to the all these names are like really cool, except <laughs> for the bald one. How would you like to be known as you're the bald one? Everyone no, else no, is the no, strong. it's it's the bold B O L D bold one. Okay, I thought yeah, it was not the bald, bald one. one. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, he's not a bald one, brother. <laughs> you're the you're the strong. You're the, you know, Quiet. whatever. You're the bald one. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know Art Toast was in this, the bald one. <laughs> All right, let's talk about a plot and put our cheesy dad jokes aside for a second. So when the just peasant Ramos... Do what? Just one second. We'll put them aside for just yeah. one second. <laughs> when the uh, peasant Ramos Clemente leads a successful revolution... In his undefined country, the former director, General de Cruz, advises that uh, his mirror is magic and can anticipate who will murder him. Clement, or Clemente, uh, becomes paranoid and kills each one of his revolutionary comrades, believing that they want to murder him. So pretty straightforward in the plot. Um, there's... I'll just give you a heads up up front. There's not really a magnificent twist. I mean, there's somewhat of a twist at the end, of course, but it's it, you can kind of see it coming from a mile away. Straightforward. Basically, these guys just get picked off throughout the episode, all four of his commanders or whatever, and it just methodically plows through the, the, the plot. But just by way of context, I wanted to read out of an old history book boy this this old history book from high school has come in handy on several occasions <laughs> i've and seen I, that cover and i was like man i remember this history book and i'm going to reference it. it it comes in handy primarily because it condenses large chunks of history down to you know just a few paragraphs and honestly it's kind of amazing that rod could have written this episode out of these, I don't know, 10 or so paragraphs that I have in this book, but um, it becomes fairly obvious early on in the, the episode that Rod was writing from a position that this was, uh, while he is named Ramos Clemente, he is patterned very closely after one Fidel Castro, right, from Cuba. So I just by way of context and backdrop, I want to read a little bit about uh, Fidel Castro for those and for my own edification uh, like who was this guy how did he come to power and uh, so that'll become very apparent in the episode uh, the the I mean the mirror the mirror if you will the mirror comparisons to Clemente and Castro so in 1934 Fulgicino Batista became the dictator of Cuba under his role Cuba prospered economically because of close ties with the United States, but many Cubans still lived in abject poverty. 
A young Cuban lawyer attempted to start a revolution against the Batista government by attacking Moncada Army Barracks in Santiago de Cuba. And on July 26th, uh, this was in July 26, 1953, and he and his followers were captured and imprisoned. And uh, they were imprisoned actually in Mexico. And after their release uh, from prison in Mexico in 1955, he, Castro, organized the 26th of July movement named after his aborted attempt to seize the Cuban government in 1953. So this revolutionary was, of course, Fidel Castro, a bearded face and tattered, with his bearded face and tattered army uniform, soon became all too familiar with most Americans. After landing in Cuba in, 19, in December of 1956, he and his followers waged unrelenting guerrilla warfare against the Batista government. And by January 1st, 1959, the Batista government had fallen and Batista had hastily left the country. Castro rode triumphantly into Havana atop of a tank. It uh, became apparent that the Cuban people had merely exchanged one dictator for another. I thought that was an interesting sentence in the context of our episode. Hailed by many Americans as a freedom fighter and an agrarian reformer, Castro quickly showed his true colors. He began a sweeping program of economic and social reforms and transferred Cuba into a communist dictatorship. Thousands of people were executed or imprisoned after mock trials, and uh, this, this was by mid-1960, a billion in Amu- a billion in American-owned properties and businesses in Cuba had been seized by the Castro government. At their 1960 meeting at the United Nations, Castro and Khrushchev warmly embraced each other as comrades. The Eisenhower administration responded to Castro's Marxism and anti-Americanism by barring Cuban imports and by reducing American exports to Cuba of food and medicine. Just before President Eisenhower left office in January 1961, the United States broke off diplomatic relations with Cuba. And then I got a little bit more on the Cuban Missile Crisis Maybe I might just save this for uh, a little bit later because I've already kind of talked about uh, the timeline of the Cuban Missile Crisis was about a year after this episode um, was aired. And then, well, let me talk about the Bay of Pigs because it's an important historical event um, in this context. But uh, on April 17th, American trained forces of about 1,600 and about 1,600 exiled Cuban freedom fighters invaded Cuba and the Bay of Pigs. Although the United States had promised these liberators U.S. air cover and support, no American aid was forthcoming, and the invasion was brutally crushed. Most of the Cuban exiles were returned to the United States at the end of 1962 for a ransom of $53 million in food and medicine. And of course, well, I'll just go on and read the next paragraph. On September 2nd, 1962, the Soviet Union announced that it had agreed to supply Russian arms and technical specialists to Cuba for defense against what they called an American imperialism. On October 22nd, President Kennedy went on television and announced a U.S. and naval quarantine of Cuba because the Soviet Union had installed offensive missile and bomber bases on the island which could be directed at the United States. As the world stood on the brink of thermonuclear war, President Kennedy and Soviet Premier Khrushchev agreed on October 28th to end the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the Soviets pledged to halt construction of missile bases in Cuba and to remove their weapons under the United Nations supervision. So hmm. that's just a brief historical background. It's, I guess if we could go back in time and really feel the weight of everything that was going on at the time this episode came out, I mean, I got to say, I'm sure Rod was, you know, very familiar and very versed with the 19. 19- 39 invasion and then the subsequent 55 invasion by Castro and then about a decade later all this stuff is well 8 to 10 years later everything's like bubbling to the surface and then to I guess to have the guts to air this episode because it is straightforward there is no I mean resemblances are the same I mean this is a straight shot at Castro yeah straight propaganda right here yeah I mean he had his idea in mind he has it's Unlike today, where people are very, uh, I guess, 
uh, scared or they have trepidations about putting their political views out on the line for fear of any blowback. That was not the case for him because he had so, a, his feelings were very strong and he put it down. So, so in a roundabout way, Rod Serling was uh, the antagonist of the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could you could say it that way. He he had his very I, I, well. I talk about this at the end too. I'll save it for the end. But uh, yeah, he was not uh, scared. Uh, he did not hold back on his political feelings when it came to tyrants, uh, communism, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that, um, let me ask you this. This is just a random question. Do you think that any world leaders pay attention to when they're in a movie or a TV show? At, let me, let me just preface this by saying like this for Castro, or do you remember the, I think it was, uh, who was it that was in the interview or whatever, where they went over there, was it Osama bin Laden or or somebody? Uh, no, it was the Kim, the North Korea guy, wasn't it? Yeah, Kim Jong. Yeah, and like he basically like threatened the United States <laughs> about releasing this movie and all that, or even in like Hot Shots uh, or Hot Shots Part Two, where Charlie Sheen and they have Saddam Hussein in there. Do you think any of those leaders actually watch this stuff? I don't know. I, I would imagine that depending on the popularity of the particular media. It's going to get back to them at some point. And because of the... I mean, let's just go back through the Twilight Zone. Uh, Khrushchev is referenced in one of the worst episodes ever we've covered so far. We've got Castro. Hitler is referenced already by season three at least a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, he was writing from a a perspective of, uh, you know, his political viewpoint. And uh, while I think he did a really good job of sort of saying staying centrist... Um, on more social issues, uh, he tried to you know give his uh, ideas and thoughts. When it came to communism, dictatorships, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, he was very uh, direct and bold, if you will, about his thoughts and feelings. But anyway, uh, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. And Jimbo, I may skip over a lot. Of things just moving through the uh, outline, so any anytime you want to jump in. Okay, Eric, how many times did they say Viva at the beginning of this episode? <laughs> I actually is counted. It, is Oh, you actually counted this time. You're not just getting no, sending yep. a question yep. that you don't know the answer to. Uh, so I can venture a guess. 12? 12 times? I counted 22 Oh, so it could wow. be twenty one or twenty two. Okay, so, I'm waiting. I mean, under. Peter, Peter, Peter Falk by himself was like viva, 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 oh, viva. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you got the crowd chanting, and then all the comrades like viva. They all echo his sentiments. So I just thought that was funny. I had to throw that in there. Yeah, Eric, do you do you know what viva means? No, I don't. Do you know the answer to that, or is there another setup question? Well, I mean, I should know. Because you, know, you live don't in, live in the Vita look. No, I don't, I don't. I think it's live, ain't it? Long live. I don't Isn't know. Is there a paper I'm towel sure. called Viva? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Eric. I only brought the bounty, the quicker, thicker, picker upper, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Does it mean clean up a mess? I don't know. I guess uh, I should have looked uh, looked up Viva while I had the chance, but I didn't. Yeah. So, well, maybe you can Google it while we launch into this. Uh, first act here as you've already All referenced right. viva the the crowd the voice well we have um ramos clemente he's on like a balcony or a veranda and he's waving to the crowds right and the, the the people below are shouting viva clemente viva clemente and then he sort of struts through this double door and he comes into the uh, again just like a, a game of pool uh, the set is very simplistic. There's not a lot of moving parts here. It's one set. Viva comes from the Italian and Spanish, where it means long live. So Long live. Wasn't, well, wasn't, wasn't too the, far off there. I'm stuck on the paper towel. That makes sense in the context <laughs> of the paper towel. You're, you can soak up a lot of messes, and your paper towel is long live. <laughs> See how I did that? Put that together. Okay. All right. Really struggled with this episode, aren't you? <laughs> I'm trying to pull anything I can. Uh, yeah. So back inside here, we're we're in what looks like to be a palace. Uh, 
you know, conference room, office slash bed. I don't know exactly, but uh, we gather very early on, as I've already kind of mentioned, that this is dictator, a dictator that greatly resembles Fidel Castro. And this is in an unnamed South or Central American country that becomes very apparent. Ramos Clemente and the four lieutenants of his revolution celebrate the peasant revolt that has just transpired. And uh, Clemente is going to bring in his uh, political enemy here. Uh, the, the four lieutenants are introduced. Uh, so Cristo, Tabal, Garcia, and they're all, I think right here they are, uh, they're kind of given their nicknames at this juncture, maybe. Um, and then soon after they, they toast to their, you know, victory celebration. And uh, Rod's introduction is forthcoming here. Yeah, I think that was pretty cool when he did his introduction. You could, see, I was looking at the mirror as he was doing it, so you could see him in the mirror too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how they put him in the corner and mm-hmm. uh, they sort of wedged him in the corner with the mirror in the backdrop. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then we go to our first commercial after uh, Rod's introduction. I think this is all on-screen introduction too by Rod, which again, as we talked before, he he's kind of gotten the habit of splitting. The two, one on camera, one uh, part of it off camera. But this one was straightforward. We go to commercial. Uh, we come back for act two. We've got the title shot uh, with the double doors uh, in the uh, title shot. And then we see a man pushed through the double doors by two guards. And... Uh, Clemente says, you recognize that man, that one, that one in the picture, arrogance and full braid. What is he now? Hey, hey, what is he now? He's an old man in a dirty uniform. And uh, we we meet De Cruz, General De Cruz, who was the former head of this unnamed Central American country. And uh, he's obviously the political enemy of Clemente. Clemente sort of rationalizes. The, uh, they have this conversation, and Clemente says, uh, basically tries to make the case that this is not about what he wants, but this is all about the people. He's this revolution is all about the people, and uh, you know, because De Cruz pushes back, and uh, Clemente hates De Cruz. Which let, let's talk about the name De Cruz because. Uh, it's you. This is the second time it's used as a character name. the The first time it was used in a hundred, not a hundred yards over the rim. The Rip Van Winkle caper. One of the characters in there was named Cruz. So I don't know. That's just a little tidbit because I'm I'm grasping at straws here to try to make any connections. <laughs> uh, it was interesting, I guess, that that name is used again. I don't know if that was purposeful to rod uh, like he had a, a good reason for that i don't know but i just thought it was interesting clemente he wants to do de- cruise to suffer for all uh, the land that he has stolen the food that he has taken out of peasants mouths and he wants every well he also wants every voice that was stifled by decree all the laws that de cruise you know put in place in his mind that made the people's lives, uh, the peasants' lives more specifically, terrible. And uh, Clemente says that uh, the firing squad is too good for De Cruz, that he wants to strip him naked and cover his body with honey and let the ants eat off his flesh. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that was a good line. Um, again, De Cruz, though, he, he sort of pushes back, and he says... I will not oblige you, Clemente, with a cry for or a plea. You can strip off my flesh because it's there for you, and it's easily done. But my manhood, my manhood, you greasy little peon, this is as far from you as the moon. I thought that was a cool line. And throughout their conversation, De Cruz is like, hey, you're just like me. Like, you're trying to make all these excuses that, you know, all these noble things that you're trying to spout out that you're doing it for the people, but it's all about greed and power and money and fame and fortune. Those are the reasons why dictators come into power. And uh, he, said, he, he illustrates that by saying that we are all of the same breed. 
and that we care for no one but ourselves. And then he goes on to say, The spoils, they are simply a legacy, Clemente. What I pass on to you, power you shall have, General Clemente. Certainly power, enough to make you giddy. But there are other things in the inheritance that, and, and that you'll find them soon enough. Fear. Fear is the chief legacy. Fear of assassination. Fear of disloyalty. Fear of rebellion. Fear of another, another Clemente hiding in the hills. God help you. God pity you. And so, yeah, but I, I think, but I think right before that, I think um, you can start seeing some of the dissension in the ranks because I do believe it's De Alessandro, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the dedicated one. He's like, look, he's he's to be judged, not tormented. So he's still trying to prove that hey, this guy still deserves his day in court. You right. know, you're not just going to judge him. You know, you know, he's got to get judged. You're not going to torment him before his his appointed time. Yeah, that's a good point. He he's still trying to stay within the bounds of the law, and I think right. Clemente goes in and calls him like a moral he moral something. I I don't remember the more moralist. It's a yeah, moralist. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, like he's uh, moralist in that he's uh, you know he's not throwing off the bounds of the the whatever laws are in place here. Um, and then you know also you see that dissension too with some of the others as the firing squads begin to fire up you know people are just being executed all of his political enemies are just being executed they're not getting their day in court and well I it was like a second. it was a yeah i think it was a th- what a thousand prisoners and they said well, what do you want to do with he said kill them all yeah. <laughs> they're like what there's, yeah, there's I, murder just all of them yeah i got a cool line that he says uh about that to rationalize that so uh, as Back to where we're at here. As the cruise is sort of being pushed out of the the room, he tells of the mirror that was brought to him by an old woman and its magic powers. Whenever he would look into it, he could see the faces of his assassins. So the cruise is ushered out, right? And Clemente orders that all prisoners be shot, right? That's what we just talked about. Murderers can never be murderers excuse me murderers can never be murdered murderers can only be executed so that's how he views all of his dissenters right, right? yeah i thought that was a cool line well and uh, if you uh if we look a little f- into the future then basically all these guys that are murderers are executed yeah well it's true Clemente walks to the mirror and he ponders what de cruz stated about the mirror and he he calls it intriguing. Now, I have a question right here. Do you think the crews made up all that stuff about the mirror just to plant subliminal messages in his mind? And then he his psyche took over, you know, Clemente, his paranoia and everything. He just knew that that would be an, uh, a byproduct of being a dictator. Or do you think it actually had magical powers? Well, this is the Twilight Zone, so I'm going to rely on the magical powers. But here's my question that I that I have: If General um, the guy before him, De, De Cruz, if he knew this was it and this was uh, showing who was going to murder him, why would you just smash the thing? Why would you just smash the mirror? Because he's intrigued. Well, he and, no, no, not just not just to Clemente. I'm going to talk about the guy before him. Oh, he said he came ten years ago. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I, I would. I would like to. I would have liked a little bit more information on the the, the character of of the lady that brought it to him. Was she a gypsy? Was she a you know oh, soothsayer? Yeah. Was she a witch? You know. Yeah, that uh, would be good. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, that would have been good to insert some information about that. So, as De Cruz is ushered out, and then uh, Clemente walks in the mirror, uh, he says it's intriguing. He turns away from the mirror and he sees Delisandro sitting at the desk. But as Clemente <laughs> turns his face to the mirror again, Delisandro is standing behind him with a gun. Dude, where did he get the submachine gun from? Did he pull it out know. of his coat or his under? It's like pull around. It's the it's bigger than his body. He turns around. He, you know, I can yeah. see a pistol or something, but he pulls out like uh, like a submachine gun, and I'm like, this well, is a little over the top. Yeah, he's gonna make sure the job gets done. Yeah, right. So, this was the this was funny part to me too. I don't know why this reminded me of Ace Ventura and Robert uh, Roger Redactor. <laughs> 
So Clemente pushes D'Alessandro out the door and over the balcony, and that scream on the way down was, ah, that was so hilarious. I thought it, it just reminded me of uh, Jim Carrey and Ace Ventura. Uh, right, but I, but I think but I think this is where he says, um, when he turns around and he's yelling at him in the mirror, I think he uses the name that he gave it to him. He says, you're the dedicated one, you're the moralist. So he actually oh. puts his, his name when he does this, when he's like, you sound like a demented man, you know, and that's when he shoves him over. So I thought that was pretty interesting because um, I did a little, I don't want to say research, but I did a little cross-referencing of everyone that uh, Clemente ends up killing um, there is something that's tied to their name to each of their killing. Okay. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So we'll get to him as each one takes a bow, if you will. Okay, so D'Alessandro, he was the first one on the chopping block. And uh, he goes, he, he has probably the most, uh, I don't know, or I don't know, uh, extraordinary death, maybe. Uh, the, <laughs> Just thrown over the top of yeah. ah! Right. <laughs> The most outrageous? I, I don't know. So, uh, after his death, it's very dramatic. We could use that word, too. It's a dramatic end. We come to, uh, you know, a commercial, and we enter Act 3. And all of a sudden, the crowd down below the, uh, you know, the balcony is very quiet. Uh, the guns of the firing squad, uh, they are heard in the background, and they are sitting heavy on this man, Tabal, the next man in the uh, general's quiver of uh, lieutenants, if you will. And uh, he's somewhat contemplative, and he's sort of upset because uh, the death of a man who was a friend, uh, his friends are getting taken out. And Tabal and Garcia uh, are the, the next, actually, to be seen in the mirror. But Clemente, he has a job for them. Well, we open up, I guess, in Act 3 with... Uh, I don't know who this is, because I get them all mixed up. But the, the guy who was sleeping on the couch, do you know his name, Jim? Yes, the that, that's name? the one I'm telling you about. I think his okay. name's uh, Garcia. Okay, Garcia. Because he's the one that I told you that his accent doesn't sound anything like uh, all the yeah. other ones. We, we sort of open Act 3 with him on the couch, and then, then we get into the, the Tabal, and Tabal is very upset. He's sitting at the desk. And, you know, people are, his friends are getting killed. You know, it's, and, it's interesting. I'll point out here that um, Clemente called Tabal the quiet one, but he's very outspoken and loud when it comes to this part of the episode, which I thought yeah. was very interesting. Right. And I may be skipping over a lot here, but uh, after Tabal and Garcia, there's the next two to be seen in the mirror, but Clemente has a job for them to do. And, uh, I'm getting kind of ahead here. That um, there, there are some obviously some dialogue that takes place. But uh, Jimbo, jump in here if there's anything of note. But Clemente has a job for them to do. He wants them to go over to the prison and check on De Cruz and report back to him. Uh, he's concerned about how they are, how he's being guarded. Him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. kind of. And. Was De Cruz right about the fears? Are there assassins under the bed and in the shadows? That's what Tabal kind of says. Are you starting to believe this nonsense about the mirror? You know, are, are you paranoid? So, as these men are dispatched out, uh, and I'm at the part now in the episode where they are, both of them are seen in the mirror, uh, they are dispatched to the prison, Clemente calls ahead to the prison and informs them that Tabal and Garcia are spies and that they are to be shot on sight. So he takes care of the two more of them. And uh, Cristo is the last man standing now. So three out of the four have been executed. Did you have any info on? No, no, not yet. Um, I do have something about the Cristo here in a little bit. Okay. That I'll say. So these two are murdered off screen if you will and um like i said cristo's the last man standing and from now on ramos you have no friends you have followers and you have competitors that is the breakdown of the world now and you must live with it i think that's a quote from cristo when they start having a conversation and again i'm i'm skipping ahead quite a bit here well, if you if you if you if you pay attention to when uh, Clemente's on the phone and you've got De Cristo behind him, 
you can see he's thinking. He's like, man, he just sent these two guys to get killed. I'm probably going to be next. Um, yeah. And you'll see when his hands stand out and he starts, it starts shaking. Um, if you pay attention after it goes off yeah. of his face, it'll start shaking. So I know he's scared, yeah. but um, you know, he's, he's, he's like, look, he's like, I'm your friend. He's like, you know, what's better than a piece of pie divided five ways, a piece of pie just divided by two of us. Right. And um, it doesn't take long for Clemente to look in the mirror and he sees, uh, De Cristo offering a glass of wine. Yeah, because uh, Cristo's already drinking it by himself anyway. So I don't understand why Clemente would think it was poison if Cristo was already uh, drinking uh, drinking out of it. Uh, he poured it from the same bottle he's been using. So if he's going to poison him, he's going to poison him himself too, which could have happened. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, so this is De Cristo's the last one. He's he's basically like, look, he's like he's because Clemente asked him. He says, "Are you a leader or are you a follower or whatever?" He said, I'm a follower. And he says, well, how, for how long? He says, until you prove to me that you cannot lead anymore. <laughs> I was like, wow. I, would, I don't think I would have said that after this guy just murdered three of your his right-hand men. Yeah. And then uh, the phone rings in the gatehouse of the prison confirms that Tabal and Garcia have been executed. Cristo says in the mirror is an ordinary mirror and that Clemente... Uh, he shoots him in the back, right? He shoots Cristo yeah. in the back, and the reality that he is all—the reality for Clemente—that he's all alone begins to set in, and it kind of washes over his face after that. And then enter Father Tomas, or Thomas, however you want to say. He enters and says the executions have been going on for a week, and the people—they're appalled. They're they're the 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 cries of "Viva, Viva!" and "Victory!" have you know they're gone. And Father Tomas says that the victory is not so sweet, is it? Instead of the flavor of wine, it's the taste of ashes. I thought that mm -hmm. was a cool line. And then um, the general is like at his breaking point here, and he can't. He says he can't live like this. And then Clemente throws his pistol uh, at the mirror, and then we see Father Tomas standing on the other side of the door, outside, like in a hallway, outside of the the room. And then he has like his ear huddled close to the door, and then we hear a shot, and then the door is opened, and then we see Clemente lying on the floor with a gun in his hand in an apparent suicide. So that's sort of the small little twist in the episode. Um, kind of could see it coming, but uh, then Rod has his closing narration. Anything else you want to interject at the end of the episode? Um. No, well, well, I do have a question for you. When um, De Cristo was at uh, when he was at the wall, uh, the mirror, and he's talking, and uh, he's like, um, I think he says he's got his face up against the glass, and he's mm -hmm. looking himself in the eye, and he says, "Now uh, you will be alone." And then he says, um, "What's what's the other word? Let me let me think real quick." He says, "Now you'll be all alone," and then he says. Uh, I should have wrote it down. Hang on just a second. It's coming to me. It says, now I'm afraid you will be very lonely. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if he's saying that to himself. Because then he turns around to Christo and he says, um, but you have just killed a better man, Ramos. So I don't know. It, it can be taken both ways, I think. Like De Cristo or De Cristo's talking to himself in the mirror, like, hey, now you're truly alone. Or it could be also another thing where he's saying that to Clemente, too. Because then he turns around and talks to Clemente after he's looking in the mirror. Yeah. So that was just a little observation I had. Okay. All right. Uh, let's move on to trivia. So Rafael Trujulio of the Dominican Republic, Fidel Castro of Cuba, and Volgencio Batista, Fidel's predecessor, they're they're all th leaders, dictators, if you will, that are mentioned in this episode. Uh, the individual in this episode clearly re or closely resembles Castro. We've talked about that at some length. Just six months prior to this episode, the Bay of Pigs, uh, the attempted removal of Castro, uh, ended in disaster. Which I'm not sure if that's accurate, or maybe I thought the Bay of Pigs was in 1962. I may have to double check our dates on that because I thought I, or my history, my trusty history book is wrong, one or the other. I have to Google that later. The entire episode was filmed on stage 19th at, 19 at MGM. 
And Peter Falk was paid $3,000 for his appearance as Ramos Clemente for this episode. And according to the October 17, 1961 uh, Hollywood Reporter, Serling was so impressed with Falk's acting, having seen him on other television programs, that he contractually signed Peter Falk to two additional appearances on The Twilight Zone. And this marked uh, his first. It turned out to be his only which, if you do a little background study on Peter Falk, I guess he got into acting rather late in life. I think he was like in his 30s before he had any appearance. I'd have to go back and look at his IMDb, but I want to say he was pretty late in life. And then, of course, everyone, his trademark was uh, his one eye. He had a glass eye, uh, and he lost that due to cancer, I think, when he was like three years old. So that was sort of his uh, trademark. Uh, Peter Falk's character, again, was loosely based on Castro. Uh, this was at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. At one point, we all had to leave the studio. Well, this is... Uh, Arthur ben Banditas for Star Starlong Magazine. And I'm not sure what character he played. Let me look he back. Tabal, he played Tabal. Tabal. So he's talking about the experience of making the episode, and he says this. It was at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and at one point we had to leave the studio dressed in our Latin American outfits. There was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Since there was a lot of uh, anti-Castro bias at the time, we felt insecure uh, walking down the streets in the uniforms. It was definitely not the time to be running around looking like one of Castro's men. I thought somebody might run us down. No kidding. I think I might have had a change of clothes before I hit the streets, uh, especially at that time. The October 20th issue uh, of the Indiana Evening Gazette warned viewers in advance that there is nothing eerie in this drama aside from the dictator's delusions concerning an ancient mirror said to possess supernatural powers. And that is the summary of my trivia. Not a whole lot here. I'm going to no goofs that uh, I'm aware of. Uh, Jimbo. I, I have a question. Yeah. Or an observation. When uh, Clemente throws the gun at the mirror, mm -hmm. I don't know if he had enough time to retrieve the gun and shoot himself that quick. Okay. You think that's a goof that might fall under the goof? Set? Well, I mean, I think it's too quick. I mean, unless he's Superman moving at the faster than a speeding bullet, he throws it and then a gunshot just click right away. I didn't see a second gun anywhere, and it looks like the same gun in his hand that he threw. So, um, I don't know. Maybe it was just, maybe just, yeah. Wishful thinking on my part or, or something. One other notation. Uh, father Tobias was also, uh, a priest in the episode, uh, dust, I think from season one. So he made it a reoccurring role here. Just a little tidbit. Uh, questions and observations. Jimbo, you already launched us off with the, the retrieval of the gun and all that stuff, that that might be uh, one for the goof section. Uh, Jimbo, have you ever seen or, well, couldn't have seen it. Have you read The Telltale Heart? I'm pretty sure that you have by Edgar Allan Poe. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So that, I just bring that up because it reminds me a lot of that story. You know, he's murdering people. Uh, he's uh, Clemente's having a lot of paranoia there. I just see a little bit of parallels with that um, particular book. And he's overwhelmed by the end. He can't take it anymore, uh, somewhat. Or I get a lot of like Scarface vibes in this ep in this episode too. Loose. I mean, these are loose parallels, obviously, but that's just you know kind of the paranoia, the fear of his enemies, uh, you know, coming and and trying to overtake him, and all that surrounds that. Uh, and then I just wrote down like, "There's no peace for the wicked." Like, he, he's got to live his life in constant anxiety, maybe, I guess, might be a way to state it, in complete paranoia, because all of these people that he's crossed, you always got to worry about your enemies doubling, doubling back and coming and get you, right? So he's always got to look over your shoulder. Um, and then, I guess, you could sort of encapsulate... The whole episode, I've, I saw this several times, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that was by Lord Acton, that quote was by Lord Acton, and I think it sort of summarizes the episode. Uh, he had all the power in the world, and instead of it tasting sweet, it tasted like uh, ashes, and um, 
I don't know, Jimbo, what do you think? I got a couple more bullet points here, but what do you? What are your questions? Any other observations? Uh, I'll, I'll save mine for the end. Okay. Uh, overall feelings. I feel like Peter Falk. He did it a, an above average job on this, but this isn't a masterpiece like some of the ones that we've seen so far. The la- of the last seventy two or whatever odd episodes that we've seen so far. There's no real twist. The episode, I think, in my mind, it sets out what it, accomp- it, it, it accomplishes, what it sets out to do. It uncovers the ugly reality of a totalitarian dictatorship and how it's rotten from the inside. And I, I honestly wonder how much of a student. I'm sure Rod was a excellent student of history, especially when it comes to world dictators, because it seems like he almost has a compulsion to write stories about them. You know, when you talk about the Hitlers and the Castros and the Khrushchevs of the world. Unfortunately for Serling, though, Castro's reign, not it was not so short-lived as in the episode here, uh, as our fictional character. Castro actually died at the ripe old age of 90 from dementia. So he ruled Cuba for many, almost all of our lifetimes up until... Well, I remember, do you remember that when he when nobody had seen him and they thought like his brother or his uncle had taken <laughs> yeah. over? Do you remember all that? that yeah, yeah, true? and the body doubles and all that stuff, right. all surfaces, sure. Um, and then I just had a, a two more points here. Is the mirror used as an il- to illustrate the fact that all of these tyrants are just reflections or copies of each other? Is that why they use the mirror as the prop? I, I thought that might be one of the reasons why because you know it's repeated over and over hey i you know once you get taken out there's going to be another guy that takes up the mantle and he's going to be just like you that's what de cruz kind of tells clemente um and then maybe maybe i'll let you launch you kind of sort of references early in the episode i just wrote the question what about white actors cast as characters from central america your thoughts Obviously, this was a different time and a different era where white actors cast as other nationalities uh, was pretty prevalent. Uh, a lot of people think today that you shouldn't even do that at all. If the, if the role calls for some other ethnicity opposite of what that person actually is, you don't even, you don't even touch it. You wouldn't even... Uh, which I think is going a little bit far. Like I think it should be to the the creator's own discretion. I mean, if it's your work and you're writing it and you feel like a particular person, whatever color, race, nationality would do a good job in the role. But I know that that's not really popular uh, today. And I don't want to open up a whole can of worms when it comes to political correctness, because that's not our show, but too this late. episode is pretty, this episode is pretty political. So it goes without saying that, you know that question so i'll let you take it from here give me your thoughts and feelings maybe address that what you talked about earlier on in the episode um i've said it before i'll say it again i think that when it comes to a a a certain role um no matter what i think it should go to the most deserving actor that uh did the interview did the casting call did the uh, performance whoever was the best actor or actress for that part should get the role now, I'm not saying to go as far as blackface and all that stuff again like we did in the past in, our, in the history of the movies. Um, so you might have to take certain leeways with stuff like that. That's like that's like uh, that movie that's out right now, uh, The Color Purple. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to cast me and you in that movie. Uh, Obviously not. <laughs> right, right. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying that's where my thought pattern goes right. um, certain movies may call for certain actors of race and, and color and nationalities and, and that's fine um, but I don't think one should be overlooked um, that may have been a better uh, talent for that role just because of what it's calling for but I'm not going to go any further into that that might be a real talk episode in the future yeah um, I think it would have been cool if when um, Clemente threw the gun at the mirror, the gun would have went off and shot him. I think that would have been yeah. a better better ending, like the mirror basically killed him. 
mm-hmm. he killed Demir. So, so um, I think Tabal, the quiet one, I think he did a really good job in this, um, especially keeping quiet. And then, but he was more of a him and and Dale Alessandro both, I think, actually had um, morals, if you will. Right. Um, they cared about their fellow countrymen uh, for the people because you could already see where Clemente was turning and going to what he was trying to stop. He was actually becoming uh, just like the leader before him. So I think his uh, little right-hand men saw that and was it was very, very difficult for them to see. I think De Cristo, he would have went with uh, Clemente till the end. I think he was the only one that uh, would have stood by him until he saw uh, Clemente cracking. Then he would have took his opportunity to done to Clemente what Clemente had done to um, De Cruz. There is a lot of nice light lighting and shadows in this, especially the reflections in the mirror. And anytime the mirror is on scene, you can look into the mirror and especially you can see Peter Falk in his portrayal when he's talking to his men. I was catching myself looking in the mirror and you, you can see that there. It's very surprising that no boom mics or no camera equipment uh, lighting or anything is seen in that mirror. So they shot it just perfectly. Um Peter Falk's acting, I thought he did he did really well. His his accent was is pretty good. Um, I didn't like uh, the one guy was his uh, name Cristo. Um, I think he or no no Garcia. I think he he didn't really have an accent, so I don't know. But are these just militiamen that are coming out? They may not all be there from Cuba or wherever this uh, city is. Um, just drawing the, the the things. So for me, this episode, it's it's is it really even a twilight zone i ask it like that because it seems more of just a political push of an agenda or a stab at castro or or anything that was going on at that time in, in, in the states um is there really even a twist i guess you could say that uh basically the mirror was the you know uh the mirror is what it was. Uh, it would show you your assassins and that everybody's true enemy is actually their own oneself at times. Um, Eric, what prop would you take from this episode? Well, you know, I'm going to say the mirror, but right. I, I, I was going to say the mirror, but I'm like, I think I'm going to take the, uh, the big long submachine gun the, to Balter or the Alessandro turns around with. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty, pretty crazy. The mirror is so the for obvious m- one. I would probably, I was me, trying to think of a secondary prop piece to pick, but I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe the, maybe the telephone. It was a pretty cool look at telephone, yeah. but for me, this, this episode comes in subpar. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to give it, um, I'll say a six. I'll give it a six. Um, okay. not, not too good. Not too bad. Just middle of the road for me. Eric? Same. Yeah. It's one of those episodes that kind of falls in the, uh, the middle of the road category for me too. Um, IMDB rated it a six, five, and I might give it a notch or two above that just cause I don't think it's at, it, it's highly maligned. I mean, from resources that I've listened to or read, I don't think it's as terrible as a lot of sources say, but I think IMDb got it right. So six five six six, it's still right in that middle lane. So, well, as you can see, we're doing pretty good, trudging through season three so far. Um, I think next week we have an episode entitled "The Grave." Um, boy, it's. <laughs> Really not we're getting much better. Let me just tell you that. So yeah. uh, if you want to reach us, we are the tragedy of cinema at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at the tragedy of cinema on Facebook. You can meet us there. Um, you can message us anytime you want. If you want to leave us a review, but Eric, any final words from the fifth dimension? Not really. Just meet us next time when we uh, cover the grave and hopefully uh, it doesn't put us in the grave when we do it. Cause we, we got to pull <laughs> ourselves covering out. This one and that one, I might just put myself in the grave. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Ramos Clemente, a would-be god in dungarees strangled by an illusion. That will-of-the-wisp mirage that dangles from the sky in front of the eyes of all ambitious men, all tyrants. And any resemblance to tyrants living or dead is hardly coincidental, whether it be here or in the Twilight Zone.